World, we got this. The podcast talking big global challenges with the experts taking them on. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Throughout this series, we will be discussing some of the major global challenges we face. Deforestation to global pandemics. In our first season of World We Got This, we will be speaking with experts about the factors at play during a global pandemic, the differing global perspectives, and ultimately, the way in which we can meet this challenge. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Julia Staposka from the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. In today's World We Got This In Conversation episode, we explore the ethics behind the coronavirus pandemic from a more personal perspective. We look at the trade-offs from a medical standpoint, as well as the subsequent lockdown, and the ethical questions people are having to ask themselves every day. We include our personal experiences of living and working in the UK, Italy and South Africa. Before I get started, I should also say that all our episodes are now available on iTunes, as well as Spotify and SoundCloud please do rate and review us. It helps us to share these conversations with more people. Now, for today's episode, I have with me Dr. Sylvia Camparesi, Senior Lecturer in Bioethics and Society, and Caitlin Gardner, an A&E doctor in London and a master's student with us here at King's. Okay, so let us kick off with a question that we start with every episode. How are you and how is your lockdown going? Sylvia, do you want to go first? Yes, thank you for inviting us, uh, Julia. I'm doing well. I'm uh, based in um, northern Italy, near Bologna, and uh, I've been stuck here since the beginning of the lockdown in northern Italy, which was on February 23rd. And this is actually the first week that we are able to go out, so <laughs> feels like uh, a relief. And uh, yeah, I um, the reason I'm here is that... Um, I had a baby in January, and uh, I decided to to be closer to my extended family, and uh, and then we just uh, got stuck here. Hi, yes, so hi. Also, thank you for having us today. Um, the lockdowns, yeah, it's going okay for me. Uh, I'm staying in northwest London at the moment. I've been here in London for the whole lockdown, and. Um, it kind of feels for the last couple of weeks or so there's nothing much that's terribly different with my life <laughs> i'm going to work i'm studying part-time um the real only difference for me is i can't study in coffee shops like i like to do but yeah otherwise it's it's going well yeah what about um at work have you noticed any changes at work I have, yeah. So uh, the biggest changes at work have been everything is, is COVID-focused now, uh, at least from the A&E where I'm working. And there are COVID areas and non-COVID areas, uh, but everyone is treated as a suspected COVID case and you take all the precautions. Um, initially, this started in, I think, everyone everywhere globally was a bit disorientated. And so we started with very high PPE uh, and then 
it was downgraded and there was confusion. And then the different areas of the hospital changed to the COVID and non-COVID areas, which caused more disorientation. And I think quite soon, though, the hospitals were doing quite well in coordinating uh, what to do about COVID. So that was my experience in the hospitals. Um, and yeah, I've I've been I've been quite impressed with the the speed with which they've responded and the the protocols that have been drawn up within the hospitals for that. What what do you think of that, Sylvia? Uh, I I think that's um, that's great to hear. Um, definitely, the NHS seems to be coping, at least from what we can read. Uh, seems to be coping with COVID. Uh, there might be different factors uh, that can explain that. Um, one that comes to mind is that you know the UK had a few more weeks to to get ready, and Italy. Italy was really the first to, to bear the brunt of the outbreak in Europe. And uh, also, I think there is a culture, this is something that I wrote about, um, there is a culture of, uh, in which, in my, Caitlin, feel free to correct me, because you're the expert of uh, discussing more openly with the public about issues of triaging. Uh, so if you don't have, um, which might not have been the case, because the healthcare capacity has ramped up quite quickly, but you know, in, at the peak of the epidemic, the problem in Italy was just we don't have enough ICU. Although you know, northern Italy is um, as uh, it's well renowned for healthcare services, and Italy just does not have that culture of talking about triage. So what happened was that the Italian um, College for um, Anesthetists and Intensive Care. Uh, the ethics committee released guidelines saying we're gonna you know, prioritize patients on the basis of uh, comorbidities um, and um, um, functional status so looking overall the functional status of the patients and where when it might be necessary to set a threshold uh, on the basis of age for access to ICUs although not it wasn't specified the cutoff in terms of age because the guidelines said, well, this cutoff will need to be contextual to a given hospital, you know, depending on the hospital in Milan and in Turin or in, in Bologna, but it might be necessary. And this provoked a total outrage from Italian media and uh, because we just were not um, used to th this decision so um, about, you know, prioritization and... Uh, the response in Italian media has been, no, we, our Italian constitution, so we have the a right to health and the right to health care, and we should just not have to, this kind of decision on the one hand. On the other hand, you have a pandemic, and um, here just not. Uh, it was the case that uh, the hospitals were a capacity, hence the attempt to flatten the curve and uh, Maybe some patients were moved from an hospital to another with helicopters uh, and you know, in the attempt to, to try to, to offer care to everybody. So I think this was very interesting. Uh, afterwards, I've been reading guidelines from the British Medical Association or you know, elsewhere in the US, and the guidelines have been quite similar to the ones that were released in Italy or even like more severe, like setting you know, a stringent cutoff in terms of age. 
Um, but yeah, this the reaction were, were uh, was quite different. I thought in in Italy. I'd be curious to hear more from Caitlin about the UK and also South Africa a bit more. Uh... Yeah. So um, again, one foot in South Africa, one foot in the UK. It's it's very very different. Um, speaking first about the UK, I I personally have had quite limited. Uh, exposure personally to having to to do that triage myself uh, from A&E we're very well supported in terms of seniors and specialties and you you refer to ICU um, or medicine and they they go ahead and make those decisions but what what I know is that um, it is based to a degree on age maybe not age specifically but frailty um, of a person and the comorbidities and everything that goes into making a person frail and generally unable to cope in their daily lives. So that has been a very big criterion in the UK, as far as I know, for limiting or considering withholding ICU if there is no capacity. I have not encountered in my personal practice any big limitations on ICU capacity so far in the UK. But again, I'm I'm part-time, you know, I'm not in the ICU. I don't know what it's like on the ground in those areas. Um, but from South Africa, the story's the story's quite different. So pre-COVID, we are constantly having these dilemmas and these conversations. We do not have enough ICU beds. We do not have enough ventilators. We are constantly triaging on the basis of who gets high care, who gets admission, who gets the treatment, who doesn't. And um, decisions have been made before. And a lot of it is, again, on frailty and age and comorbidity. And... Uh, you know, this is not a, it's not a new thing um, at home, even for junior doctors or, you know, we don't often don't have senior support as we do here in the UK. Um, so doctors are to some extent making those decisions on the ground themselves with guidance from protocols because it's been so long standing. Um, now with COVID, so I've been discussing this issue with a friend of mine who's working at a rural hospital in Mpumalanga. And they have a single ventilator to use um, in the A&E. They have two ventilators in the theatre. So they have three in total, but they actually can't use the two ventilators because the manpower it would take to man those is too great. So effectively, they have one ventilator, but then you having a multitude of people coming in and keeping coming in. Now, who do you decide who gets that ventilator? And not only that, the patient's now on a ventilator. Your hospital does not have the resource to support them. They need to go to, they need to be referred to a higher level hospital. 
but now there are other criteria to say you can or cannot refer that patient who's now on the ventilator. So there is constantly, constantly balancing acts that are happening. Even before COVID, we have such a high extent of TB and HIV and AIDS in South Africa that has made these realities just ordinary, morbidly ordinary. And uh, yeah, just speaking to what Sylvia was saying, that these these decisions that are being made aren't, aren't new uh, and they are being made constantly in parts of the world that are not as well resourced and are not as privileged and it's uh, no one should have to go through that and it's terrible that Italy is having to make those choices and anyone's having to make those choices but they're not new and uh, you know, we need to find ways to decide who gets who gets what. So let's look at bioethics here, because that's that's you know the domain that you're both looking at. So what what exactly is bio bioethics, and how does bioethics shape your understanding of these circumstances? I would say bioethics is an investigation of the ethical and social issues that arise from biomedicine, biotechnologies, but also life sciences more broadly. So it really brings together bios, life, and ethics. And um, it is more than an academic discipline. It's a field of inquiry where people with different backgrounds and expertise uh, um, uh, meet to come up with mostly with policy solutions, some kind of recommendation for how to you know uh, do things in the world. Some of us work in academia, like myself, I'm a, where I'm a senior lecturer. I have a background in biotechnology and uh, philosophy, applied ethics. But then you can have um, people working uh, uh, in the field. Uh, meaning uh, in different uh, capacity, um, in policy making, in uh, public engagement, uh, in um, hospitals. So this, uh, these questions uh, that Catherine was, was talking about so eloquently from the um, about triages are quintessentially bioethical issues. And actually when bioethics uh, as a discipline, so as we know it today, the early years of bioethics in the 60s uh, in the US uh, were years of great optimism in medicine and in, uh, in science because we had access to wide programs of immunization, uh, of uh, antibiotics, so we had access to uh, organ transplant, successful organ transplant for the first time, we had access to dialysis, so we had were years of great optimism, but then the problem was a similar problem to what we have today, meaning we had these new technologies that were able to save lives, which I've mentioned, and, but we didn't have enough to save all lives. So the early bioethicists were referred to as the God Committee because they had to come up with criteria which were, could be uh, transparent and consistent so that uh, in the case of uh, having to allocate scarce resources, it could be done in a transparent uh, way. So there are different criteria to to do that uh, without entering into the detail. I think it's important to 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 stress that yeah, these decisions are not new. In the uh, global north, we might be in this privileged position in which many doctors were not confronting with this decision and. 
that's why in uh, in Italy, uh, but also elsewhere, we had uh, doctors being reported as um, uh, weeping in the um, hallways of the hospital because they had to make this decision. This was reported as the New England Journal of Medicine in early March, and it is something that is referred to as moral distress or or different terms that indicate that uh, you know these doctors. It was the first time that they had to confront this decision. But as um, as Caitlin was saying, uh, we have much to learn from Global South, uh, uh, where these balancing acts are, are done on a daily basis, and there are uh, possibly ways to you know d discuss with the family and the patients outside of an emergency context that there need to be criteria in place and. Uh, I think I would say it's better to have clear and transparent criteria than just to leave, uh, you know, doctors to have to make these decisions alone. Doctors do not want to make this decision alone. I would say, but I don't, Caitlin can say more. Yeah, no, exactly. Just to speak to that, um, it's very difficult for, or I don't think it, it should be necessarily the duty of the doctor who has the patient in front of them to decide does this do do I get to save this patient's life or not uh, I read a, a wonderful article that stuck with me it was a while ago so I can't remember the source unfortunately but it was saying that the the doctor is the patient's advocate and these criteria that say whether a patient should get ventilation or should get ICU they need to be drawn up and made before it comes to the doctor having the patient in front of them um, and you know the doctor is the patient's advocate and is you know is trying to help this patient as much as possible with but in light of guidelines that have already been drawn up so it's not then the sole responsibility of that single doctor who is choosing for this patient's life and then has to go on for the next 11 hours of their shift continuing to do that and feeling like the burden of that person's life which they may not have been able to save is solely on their shoulders anyone no one can cope with that and be effective in their job i think and so this is why bioethics and having bioethical teams and hospital ethical teams is so important to make these decisions to discuss the ethics around them beforehand to draw up these guidelines and then help the doctors and give advice to the doctors who are facing the patient be able to make these that's really interesting because i as a non-medical person i hadn't really been thinking so much about the doctors and the the ethical uh, place that they that they have to go to in order to to treat people because you can't save everyone and how challenging that must be I want to um, also uh, turn to um, the ethics of the lockdown itself and in treating everybody the same so um, you know that this idea that we're all placed in the same it, we're all inside and we all have to be doing the same thing. We're all not going to work. And that 
and that our homes may be different for different people. I consider myself quite privileged. I've got a flat to myself and though I'm pregnant and it is a bit confusing to be pregnant during the lockdown, I'm not in a situation where I'm living with eight other people or I'm in a situation where I can work from home where there are many people in London who cannot or there are many people in London who are frontline workers and then expose their families um, potentially by coming back home. And then I'm also not in the situation where I live with my grandparents, which is also uh, – would bring about an ethical issue. It's like, do you leave if you if you've got vulnerable people at home? So, Sylvia, you recently um, uh, wrote a piece in Aeon, and you talked about you know this idea of treating everybody the same. I wonder if you could um, talk more about that now. Yes, uh, these are all. Um, I think it is a fascinating time uh, to some level to be a an ethicist or a bioethicist because there are so many ethical issues in the pandemic. And so the first one we talked about is the ethics of triaging uh, and how to co- make this decision and uh, how to support the doctors. And I agree with Caitlin uh, that, you know, this should be supported, etc. The second issue I had identified was um, among many others uh, the ethical issues uh, in lockdown and so in public health tension. So we have lockdown because, you know, our governments are trying to uh, flatten the curve of the epidemic so that hospitals do not reach capacity. And this is buying us time and buying us time to develop a treatment, to have uh, trials, uh, to develop a vaccine and also, of course, to avoid um, uh, having to triage um, as many patients as possible, but then in public health, you are restricting individuals' freedom for the for the public good, and uh, the principles that uh, are the key principle in public health ethics um, are principles of proportionality and least infringement. And um, proportionality means that uh, you know there is any restriction of individual freedom should be proportional to the public good that uh, we are trying to achieve. And of course, uh, if we're talking about saving lives, this seems, you know, the, the most uh, uh, important aim. Uh, and indeed, uh, you know, it was uh, many governments, including uh, <laughs> uh, our governments, decided that it was justified to restrict our freedom of move- movements. However, uh, you know, as many commentators have pointed out, there is not just one uh, response to the pandemic. There have been uh, differences in national governments. And earlier on, Catherine was talking about the big difference between South Africa and um, UK. And I'd be curious to hear more about you know, what measures are in place in, in South Africa. But if we speak about Italy and the UK, uh, Italy has restricted individual freedoms more than the UK for almost, um, uh, uh, it was uh, eight weeks, uh, uh, we were not able to, to go out for a, a leisure walk or run. And um, public health guidelines would say there should be <laughs> the best evidence possible in support of, uh, you know, these restrictions. So is it the case that if you go out for a 
for a walk or for a run, are you going to contribute to the uh, to the spreading of the coronavirus? And I think my argument was um, that it was not justified because we just don't have that evidence. If we go out with a, a mask and uh, adopt protections, we we are going out for a walk by ourselves, etc. We are not going to contribute to the spread of the coronavirus. And on the other hand, you can have harms, either direct or indirect, linked to the lockdown. Mental health, I've been mentioning, and also you, Julia, were talking about the fact we are in a privileged position in our household, but um, the lockdown can affect the different people in different ways. And obviously, having access to an outdoor space can and there is evidence to show that it can really increase uh, the well-being what if people cannot work from home uh, and then there are other issues of uh, you know the vulnerable and how are, are we going to protect them so one of the case studies uh, that um, I discuss uh, uh, in the article in the, and in the other article that I wrote as a as a follow-up, when I discuss the phase two of the pandemic, as we start to slowly emerge from the lockdown, are issues of uh, trust. And we know that different countries uh, have been classified as being a high trust or low trust towards their governments. And in this classification, Italians or other um, countries such as Spain or uh, Southern Europe are classified as having low trust in their co governments, hence needing a very stringent lockdowns, and while Sweden or the UK having higher trust and hence, you know, being able to uh, have uh, more freedoms. And I think uh, there is research out there that challenges this uh, distinction, and I talk about this research in other areas in which uh, uh, social sciences research uh, has uh, looked at uh, compliance with public health advice in other contexts and vaccination is a big one or um, climate change or pharmacological treatment, compliance to treatment. And it has shown that it's not like a simple binary relationship. You have high trust in your government or you have high trust in expert knowledge in the medical profession, you're compliant, uh, you have low trust, you're not compliant. It's much more complex. So I was trying to, to challenge that, and also I had other thoughts about vulnerability, but um, I'll stop here. Caitlin, what are your thoughts on, on this issue? Uh, it's, uh, it's very complicated, and I'm still forming my thoughts around it, and um, especially with regards to, you know, South Africa. Um, I'm, I'm aware I'm speaking from a place of supreme privilege. I, I have a safe home and I have food and I have security. And uh, so my opinion does stem from that. And uh, in South Africa, the lockdown has been very strict. A national state of disaster was um, announced. And the lockdown has meant that there has been a military presence on the streets and no one is allowed to leave their homes. Now, now it's relaxing, but at least for the last several weeks, no one could leave their homes except to do essential shopping or as an essential worker. And uh, even, I, I think, maybe the only, if one of the only countries to ban cigarettes and alcohol as well. So removing that personal freedom on top of the freedom of movement. So South Africa has gone very far with removing personal freedoms. 
I uh, and at least my echo chamber of um, medical professionals in South Africa, as far as I know, we feel that this has been largely quite good and quite beneficial for South Africa. We have a huge amount to lose and we have a hugely vulnerable population, which in itself causes problems with restricting movement uh, because much of the business, for example, in South Africa is informal. And so removing the ability to move or trade means that people can't eat now. So there's, there's that that's hugely problematic as well as in South Africa, we have a quadruple burden of disease. Uh, one of the burdens is interpersonal violence and domestic violence and uh, violence against women. That is one of our hugest problems in South Africa. And now people are stuck in their homes with their abusers and um, there's less mobility. So there's less ability to remove oneself from that situation. So there's this huge tension between all of these factors. However, I think that the limitation of the freedoms that South Africa has imposed has been to prevent a disaster that would completely eclipse all of those things, which would be to decimate our public, our, our health system uh, and thus cripple the economy because we wouldn't have a health system and thus all those people who were undergoing violence or any of the quadruple burden of disease would not get any help. So I think it's in that respect, it's, it's been, it's been good to see what happens and to see that there has been a much lower rate of mortality now, probably because of the lockdown or hopefully because of the lockdown. Um, it's been interesting to hear about the limitation on the cigarettes and the and the uh, alcohol, uh, yeah, I I understand. I've looked a little bit into the reasoning for that, and um, the smoking I think was bad because obviously it damages the lungs and further predisposes you to getting coronavirus. And people in South Africa share cigarettes, and so passing from your mouth to their mouth is going to transmit disease a lot faster. And then alcohol is a really big catalyst for the for violence and domestic violence in South Africa and trauma in South Africa. And uh, the head of trauma at Grotesque Hospital um, had a, a piece of news in News24, I think, a little while ago that was saying that their level of trauma cases have dropped by one to two thirds. They're not seeing half as many, you know, stabbings or violence. And that could be because of the limitation on alcohol. It could be because people aren't moving around so much. We've we've still got to see what that is. But tentatively, we, we're speculating that alcohol might have something definitely to do with that. But then the question is to ask, can we be so paternalistic towards our population and say, this is not good for you? Therefore, we're going to ban it. And uh, there, 
possibly is justification for that now in or previously when we were going into this crisis because we needed to save our health system it was so vulnerable and so precious um but now a question of going forward and easing those restrictions are going to we're going to see you know how these freedoms are still going to be limited or not limited and i think that's going to be a very difficult balancing act for home so um yeah that i mean that's the situation in south africa very different to the swedish model which is all over the news of uh, almost almost complete freedoms and putting trust in the hands of the people i don't think this would have worked in a society like home where food is obviously a bigger priority than getting the coronavirus and so stricter measures have to be put in place um yeah this goes to show that you know one one model in one country doesn't necessarily work in uh, in another country and maybe even from city to city it, it might be different and so this really needs a a, a more personalized approach and um, but looking yeah. to the future i mean do you see anything positive coming out of this? I mean, here in the UK, there's been discussions of inequality, but there's also been this demonstration of solidarity with the people. I mean, everybody coming out every Thursday night and clapping for the NHS workers, the people volunteering online, um, people uh, organizing Zoom socials just to stay in touch with people. I mean, th these are really nice things that are that are coming out of the pandemic i mean do you see other positive things coming from this yeah i mean um i do think that there's potential for for many positive things to come from this i think if we can move from a a culture of individualism to a culture of collectivism uh and helping one another and solidarity, that would be amazing. And there's a, an, a philosophy in in South Africa and Africa called Ubuntu, which I think is really amazing. Uh, and it is, I'm a person because of other people. And I think if if the world could embody that sense of community during this time and sense of solidarity, that would be uh yeah that would be amazing to move away from solitariness and individualism and uh we've another wonderful thing that's at least been noted at home is the the, the interaction and the partnerships between public and private sectors uh and there's a huge divide between those two places at home and even, i mean at home there's the global north and global south divide within south africa um and so to see those two sectors coming together has been really, really promising, especially because we're wanting to develop an NHI, uh, which is similar to the NHS. Um, so, yeah, that's really promising for the future. So I, I just hope that we can move away from hoarding for ourselves self-interestedness and the spirit of wanting to help one another across the world. I hope we can sustain that. Echoing what uh, both of you have said, I think uh, solidarity is uh, the word for going forward and a new concept for bioethics. Um, 
uh, speaking from the perspective of bioethics and uh, having a look at the future, uh, it's not like it's a newish concept. I, some colleagues, including colleagues in our department, like Barbara Prainsack and Elena Boix, have, have talked about you know solidarity in bioethics as a new lens. Uh, this was work from a few years ago, but I think it's really relevant today. A solidarity responsibility instead of you know the autonomy, which has been the pillar of bioethics, at least in the Western world um, mm. for the past 50 years. Uh, something else that I think uh, the pandemic is showing is yeah, solidarity between generations and uh, something that I hope that uh, can be continued post-COVID is, um, you know, I think the younger generation are making uh, huge sacrifices. Uh, uh, I mean, this particular disease, COVID-19, has a higher prevalence and severity in the older demographics. But as I was, we were talking about, uh, the lockdown um, is affecting uh, all the population in the same way. And the younger generation are really having to, um, to make huge sacrifices in terms of not just of restriction of freedoms, but, for example, education, uh, not being able to have uh, in-person education, but... Um, uh, teams or, or Zoom, and this might go on for, for a few months, or there might be some kind of blended, flexible form of learning in place. And um, yeah, what I want to say is that I think the older demographics should really be <laughs> grateful, um, I think they are, to the younger ones for the sacrifices that they're making. And some of the requests uh, that younger generation by I've been making over the past few years, such as uh, you know, climate change or attention to the environment, and in terms of uh, requesting um, lifestyle change in traveling less, less uh, traveling less by airplane, especially unless when it's you know necessary. Uh, now I think some of those requests uh, fail off in comparison to the requests I've been making today uh, of sudden life changes for for weeks or months, uh, because I think you know this. Um, in the time frame of, of months, um, possibly you know, one or two years until we have um, treatment or a vaccine. So solidarity going forward between generations and uh, uh, as uh, the new cornerstone of uh, bioassets bio or society, really. There's definitely more that we can explore there, Sylvia. Unfortunately, we don't have uh, time, but before we go, I want to ask you, Caitlin, you're studying a master's part-time and working. How is it studying at the moment, considering the circumstances? Yeah, so I mean, speaking to working and studying part-time, um, it's it's been kind of wonderful, actually. I've, I've been really enjoying it. Uh, Bioethics is just so applicable to my work, uh, but actually it just all areas of society that to study it and then think about these issues on the ground while I'm working, while I'm uh, thinking about my actual life, my practical life uh, has been so wonderful. Um, it's, it doesn't feel like I'm in a, in a sort of student bubble and then I'm going to go into the real world. I'm incorporating those two things at the same time so I think there because of technology it's not going to be as limited as I thought it was I I have become very optimistic after just having had this training module last week 
it's not the same and I think we maybe just have to get used to something different yeah thank you for that Caitlin unfortunately as I said this is all we have time for today but I wish you all the best with your master's course and Sylvia I wish you all the best with your teaching and your return to work from maternity leave it's been a great conversation and um, you're welcome back anytime you've been listening to the podcast world we got this brought to you by the school of global affairs at king's college london to find out more about the podcast and our work head to our website kcl.ac.uk forward slash world we got this here you'll find a full list of further reading materials this podcast has been produced by james bagley and julia stepawoska with editing by rachel wall to help us reach more people please rate and review us in itunes acast or wherever you get your podcasts until next time remember world we got this